I'm Oprah Winfrey. Welcome to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is time. Taking time to be more fully present. Your journey to become more inspired and connected to the deeper world around us starts right now. Today on Super Soul Conversations, former Vice President Joe Biden, he's speaking about his deeply personal new book, Promise Me, Dad, A Year of Hope, Hardship, and Purpose. Regarded as one of the most influential vice presidents in history, Joe Biden reflects on this tumultuous period of American politics. He shares his family's spiritual and emotional journey after the heartbreaking death of his son, Beau, his resilience in the face of public scrutiny, and why the decision not to run for president still weighs on him. So thank you for being here, Mr. Vice President. I'm happy to be here. And coming all the way to California. I'm delighted to be here. It's always a pleasure to be here. I wanted to start with the moment that we all got to see you experience on CBS when you did the letter to yourself. I found that so moving. Last year, you wrote a letter to your younger self that starts with, Dear Joe, your stutter is debilitating. It embarrasses you, and the bullies are vicious. But listen to mom when she says, bravery resides in every heart, and yours is fierce and clear. She did say that. (sighs) I just thought, that's not an easy first sentence. And the rest of the letter, as is your new book, Justice Personal. So what did coming to terms with writing this book and having to revisit all of the major moments in your life teach you about where you are now? Well, you know, uh, my mother used to say, and I thought it was so cruel at one point, especially when uh, I lost my wife and daughter and we walked out of the hospital aid. A tractor trailer had broadsided him and killed him, and my two sons were badly injured. And she said, Joey, grab my hand. She said, out of everything horrible, something good will come if you look hard enough for it. But that was my mother's, my mother's notion. We were taught to just, just to get up. When you get knocked on, just get up and, and, uh, and move forward. And talk about how you know, so many people, without the kind of help that I had, do it every day, right, right today. There's somebody who's gone through something significantly worse than me, and they have nobody behind them, and they're getting up and they're moving. And it gives me such overwhelming confidence in, in, in people, the ability to absorb mm-hmm. pain and the spiritual reassurance that comes from knowing they're still a part of you. Would you say that that is one of the most important spiritual characteristics to have? that is to keep getting up. Absolutely, absolutely. Because, you know, it's a, uh, but it, I'm not saying it's easy. I have to admit to you, there have been a couple times uh, in my, uh, well, one in particular in my life where I've actually lost my faith, where I went through a period of thinking, how could this be? I mean, why, you know, like the why me piece. Mm-hmm. And my dad, who was a wonderful, well-read, graceful, high school educated guy said, champ, where, where, where's it written that life owes you living, man? I know, but it doesn't make you feel any better in the moment. Well, what it, what it makes, it makes you, at least in my family, my mother thought the greatest virtue of all was courage. 
and because it allowed all the other virtues to exist. And from the time I was a kid, not a joke, my mother would go, look at me, Joey. Uh -huh. Look at me. Remember, you're defined by your courage. Wow. And you're redeemed by your loyalty. Look at me, Joey. And it was this notion that, that you could do anything because there's this notion in, in my faith, my family, that, that those you lose remain a part of you. Uh -huh. um, but it's hard to get there. It's hard to get to the place where uh, a memory brings a smile to your lip before it brings a tear to your eye. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a hard thing to go through, but I was lucky. I always had... Uh, You've been through it a few times. Well, a lot of people have been through it. Yeah. In 1972, just weeks after winning his first race for Senator of Delaware, Vice President Biden's first wife, Nelia, and his 13-month-old daughter, Naomi, were killed in a car accident. His sons, Hunter and Bo, were aged three and four at the time. They were injured, but survived. In 2015, Bo Biden, a decorated war veteran and Delaware's attorney general, lost his battle with brain cancer. Bo was 46 years old. So when you get that call and you're living in that space of disbelief that this has actually happened, and you think that this is the worst possible thing that could ever happen to you, but you have somehow been trained by your parents, by your belief system, to look for the opportunity within every tragedy. But that doesn't come easy. No, no, it doesn't. Look, I mean, I still have, uh, I, I still find myself when I talk about my beau, my, my son. Yeah. Who, who, who died. I sometimes uh, find myself say something about it and I can't handle it. I start to, I break down. Um, so it's not like it, it, it ever, the pain ever goes away. But what, you, what I do is I look at my grandson, his son, mm -hmm. and I see him. I look at my granddaughter, I see her, and I know he's still here. I know he's still, he's still with me. But when you lost Naomi, your baby daughter, in the car accident with your first wife, no preparation, the shock of it, the horror of it, it's quite different, isn't it, when you have had some preparation knowing that Bo was sick for a while? Or is it? It's different, uh, and it's probably different for every person. But for me, when what happened to my wife and daughter happened, um, I, had, uh, I had a reason um, to live. I had a reason that I had these two little boys who mm -hmm. were in the hospital. And, you know, I said at the time, I probably should never said it all those years ago, I said, I can understand how someone can be completely, thoroughly sane and commit suicide and decide that, look, I've been to the top of the mountains. Mm -hmm. I'm not getting there again. I had it all. And it was just, you know, mm -hmm. so long. But, um, but I had those two boys. And ironically, uh, they ended up raising me, Oprah. Not a joke. I mean, to this day, my son, Hunter, who's part of my soul, if uh, we walked off out of here and he'd say, hey, Dad, can I get you anything? He'd come up and give me a kiss. He's 45 years old, the smartest guy I know. He'd give me a kiss. Dad, do you need anything? You okay, Dad? Calling me, asking me. They lost their mother. They lost. So there was reinforcement watching someone who you adore, who really is part of your soul. I mean, yeah. not, not a, it's not hyperbole. Uh, watching him go through with such grace, but such awful pain. 
um, dying knowing that the likelihood that he was going to be able to survive was virtually non-existent. So we got the diagnosis of Bo. Um, he had stage four glioblastoma of the brain. And so, and he, and he, but here's the kind of kid he was. He was a 45-year-old man. He was the attorney general in the state of Delaware. He was a Bronze Star, a decorated war veteran. He uh, didn't have to go and volunteered to go for a year. He volunteered to go to Kosovo as a Justice Department in the middle of Pristina, in the middle of the war. He, I mean, this, 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 this was a kid who was just absolutely, everything about him was a sense of duty and obligation. You know what struck me about what I read about him is that he's going to a celebration of Iraqi war veterans and he won't even wear his... Yeah, he wouldn't put on his he wouldn't put he on his, put his medals. He, he got a call from General Ordierno. Yeah, said, "Bo, this is an order, Captain. Put on, on your, your medals. medals. First time I ever put them on. Wow. And when he won the bronze, he said, "Dad, don't tell anybody. Yeah, don't tell people about this. Okay." When he okay. won the bronze medal, well, he, he said, "Don't it. tell anybody." No, no, he didn't tell me till he got home. Uh. So, but and when he went into service, he said, "I don't want to use the name Biden." You know how they all have. Yeah. Uh, I, I've been in and out of Iraq and Afghanistan 28 times. So I got to see him when he was there on three different occasions. And at first, he would not wear the, you know, they have their name. Right. He would, he got permission to wear, to, to have another name. I think he used Hunter, his mother's maiden name. You know, but he wouldn't use Biden because he did not want to be treated any differently. So how did he tell you well, that um, it was stage four? How did you hear? Well, I was with him. Um, he was first diagnosed with having had a stroke. He came out of the military. He uh, had uh, um, he was deemed the fittest guy in his in, in, in his battalion. Uh, they do these tests. Uh, he had I think it was nine percent, ten percent body fat. I mean, he was a runner. And uh, one day when he was running, he uh, he started to lose, kind of hallucinate. And it worried him. He didn't want to tell anybody. And finally, he told his brother, who was his lifeline, Hunter, um, about it. And they eventually told me. And, and then one day, I'm going down to Washington after, after being home on the weekend. And I, my Secret Service agent comes in. And he says, he said, Mr. Vice President, Mr. Vice President, the general's down. The general's down, referring to my son, the attorney general. He said, he's down. He's down. I came running down. I said, what do you mean? He said, the ambulance is coming for him at his home. He's down. I don't know what. And so I wrote, I got, his house was only a mile and a half away. I rode in with him and he was paralyzed and he lost his ability to speak. And he kept going, I, I, what, what the hell's going on? And they diagnosed and they did the MRI. They showed where the, where the clot was. The, and it was diagnosed initially as a stroke that resolved itself. It's a long story. I don't want to bore you with it. But the next thing, it turns out it was the beginning of the growth of this cancer. Mm. And uh, so when he kept getting worse, um, we went down to MD Anderson and in August, and they diagnosed him with stage 4 glioblastoma. And uh, Hunter and Ashley and Jill and I, uh, and he all made a deal. We would not talk about the percentages because we, we just had hope. You just, without hope, you can't live. And, uh, and so I, that's how I began to get knowledgeable about cancer. I tried to learn everything I possibly could about the disease. And um, what Bo would do is uh, I'd see him and he'd say, Dad, he'd say, Dad, look at me. Stop looking sad. Don't look sad, Dad. No matter what happens, I'm going to be all right, Dad. You've got to look happy. 
You've got to look strong for the family, the dad. The family needs you to look strong, dad. And uh, I'm not exaggerating. I mean, it's like uh, I, uh, uh, he was, um, he was a remarkable young man. I'm not suggesting other people. I'm just speaking about him, though. He was, um, it was always about everybody else with Bo. It was, you know, my dad had an expression when we were growing up. His teacher said, Joey, never explain and never complain. I can say, give my words to Biden, I never one single time from the moment he was born ever heard Bo Biden complain. Mm. Not one single time. Joe Biden was born in Scranton, Pennsylvania. He was raised by his mother, Catherine, and his father, Joseph Sr., who cleaned furnaces and later sold used cars. The family later moved to Mayfield, Delaware, where Joe Jr. washed windows and weeded gardens to help pay tuition for the prestigious Archmere Academy, a private school Joe said was his deepest desire to attend. He would go on to the University of Delaware and later law school at Syracuse. In 1972, Joe Biden was elected U.S. Senator for the state of Delaware. You know, what I was struck by, I read that ever since you were a little boy, you were a boy with a vision, that you had a picture in your head of the kind of man that you wanted to be. Did you live up to your own expectations? Did you fulfill the vision or exceed the vision? I, by and large, um, uh, believe that I have uh, ended up being the man I wanted to be. But it wasn't in terms of accomplishment. Mm. It was because people usually translate that into, you know, as a young guy, I knew I wanted to be senator, I knew I wanted to be president. I knew I, but that, that wasn't true. Um, what was true was I wanted to live up to my parents' expectation. Mm. And I wanted to be that person that uh, my mother met my mother's standard being defined by my courage. I wanted to be that person who, uh, who was, uh, no matter what happened, just got back up and kept going. I wanted to be that person who was there and loyal to people who, uh, who were loyal to him. I wanted to be there. I wanted to be that guy who uh, was, knew what was worth losing over. Did you know as a little boy, when you had the vision as a little boy, when you had this picture in your head, what was the picture? The picture, it varied as I got older. What I came down to was, I realized everything in my family and in my faith was about the abuse of power, that we had an obligation to challenge the abuse of power, whether it was starting off as a kid in the civil rights movement um, and sit-ins and being the only white employee in the east side of the city, and, or whether it was uh, you know challenging, uh, saying things when I ran for election that I knew were not popular, but I believed. And, mm -hmm. And because I believe people ultimately reward you for authenticity. And don't you think, too, this is interesting, when I think about you, because every, everybody knows that you're getting on the train every night and going home and, you know, sworn into office, actually, in the hospital when your boys were, were there. And so you're a dedicated father going back and, and forth from Delaware to D.C. Don't you think that actually being on that train every day 
was a grounding, was a grounding mechanism because I remember living in Baltimore, taking the train to New York and going to DC. There is something about looking out the window, which I actually love even now driving in a car and seeing people's homes. Absolutely. Yeah, and thinking about, I wonder what they're eating tonight. What are they talking about at that kitchen table? What are they talking about at the kitchen table? You look out on that stretch between Baltimore and Aberdeen. Yeah. And you see all those lights on and and you wonder, what were they talking about? Or for example, I, I, by the way, the reason I went home was I needed my kids more than they needed me. I mean, I really did. But you, you know, as a parent, you know a child can only hold an important thought for about 12 hours. If you miss it, you miss it. So even though I wasn't Ozzie and Harry, we had mm. breakfast and dinner, I'd go home and lie in bed with them. They'd talk and get up and, and so, but the thing that was the best would happen You'd, you'd be in Washington, and you'd be a vote, and you'd cross Constitution, and a cop would stop the traffic. And after a while, you'd begin to think, well, what took him so long, you know? <laughs> but, but you get on the train, and you go home, and the shoeshine guy, a good friend of mine, say, Joe, what the hell are you doing down there, man? Come here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, not a joke. Not a joke. If you notice, if you've ever been in Delaware, from the time I ran, I've been referred to as Joe. That's all, they, they don't call me Senator, even today, the Secret Service looks when they go, hey, Joe, come here. You know, these are constituents. And they kind of like, oh, what, what, what's going on here? But it really does ground you, man, because they know Even you. after becoming vice president? Oh, absolutely. So there, it really keeps you from ever getting to the point where you feel self-important. Yeah. I know this sounds like hyperbole, but yeah. it, it really is true. It well, was a gift. If it keeps you so connected to the people and where the people are, and everybody now knows how badly the media got it wrong, you must have had some inkling. You must have had, you must have not have been shocked then on the on election night, Hope if right. you were actually on the train talking to people with the people. I didn't drive, as vice president, I took the train on the weekend. I didn't go every day, but I did 83 events. And a month out, I came back and said, we're going to lose this election. A month out. A month out. Mm. And the reason I did, you know, I know I'm called middle class Joe. In Washington, that's not meant as a compliment. It means you're not sophisticated, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know. But what was happening is, the reason I believed we were going to lose, and I think Hillary would have been a great president. I really do. I think she would have been a great president. But there, there's two studies that came out. One was uh, Annenberg School. I forget the other one. I apologize now. But it looked at all the words uttered in a campaign. How many of those words related to an issue? Fewer words were uttered relating to any specific issue this last campaign than any campaign in the last 10 presidential races. Now, you are an incredibly well-informed person. I'll bet you can't find 10 friends who could tell you what Hillary's position was on child care. Not, not generically, specifically. Right. How we're going to have free college education, how it's going to be paid for, how all the things that matter to those people, and by the way, we wouldn't be having this discussion but for 172,000 votes. Let's put that in perspective, mm-hmm, too. Okay? Mm-hmm. But in the states they had me going in, I spent all my time in Pennsylvania, Ohio, Minnesota, Michigan, Wisconsin, Florida, Virginia, they're, they're the places I went. And this is not a criticism. But I think what happened is we got to the point where it became identity politics. Mm-hmm. And they learned wrong lessons from Barack's brilliant campaigns he ran. And, for example, at the end of the campaign, I went up to a union hall to make a point. And I said, you know, one of the reasons Hillary has to win, there's like 2,000 union guys. 
So one of the reasons Hillary has to win, important, because they need equal pay for women. Place went nuts. You know why? All their wives work. The, the political types, they don't like the fact their wife isn't being paid. Where the wives weren't being paid fairly are in corporations and law right, firms right, in right, right, Silicon right. Valley. But these, these guys' wives are high school educated kids and they're not getting paid. Then I said, and secondly, look, it's none of your business who the hell you marry, man. Let well enough alone. Period. Cheered. They cheered. Cheering. I'm not joking. Now, they, the, the press said only Biden can do that. That's not true. You got to state what you're for. And if you get suckered into not having the time, and in fairness to the press, it's a lot easier for the press to cover whether or not he groped a woman or whether she sent an email than it is to determine how you pay for free college education, than it is to go in and look at whether, what, what, what your position is on real tax equity. And I mean, it's just easier. It's easier. And, and it's almost like they can't not cover it. They can't not cover it. And so if you look at all the coverage, there's hardly any coverage about the things that matter to the lives of ordinary people. You have no regret in the deepest, quietest, purest moments about not actually running. I have a regret that I am not president because I think there's so much opportunity. Mm. I think America is so incredibly well positioned. Um, but I don't regret the decision I made because it was the right decision for my family. Oprah, no woman or man should announce they're running for president unless they can answer two questions. Yeah. One, do they truly believe they're the most qualified person for that moment? I believed I was. But was I prepared to be able to give my whole heart, my whole soul, and all my attention to the endeavor? And I knew I wasn't. Were you still broken? My family was broken. I was broken. And I find myself even like, you know, this is why I know there was sexism in the campaign. I'd be speaking somewhere and someone would yell, Bo Biden. And I'd say, Bo. And I'd find myself breaking down. And people would say, wasn't well, he a good father? If Hillary broke down, they would have said she's playing the woman card. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it was, so I, I just knew, I just. It, do, you feel, just you, do you feel just, you could have beaten Hillary? I've, yes, but it would have been an incredibly difficult race, and I have nothing but friendship for Hillary. Like, and did you not want to take that on? Because when everyone was getting excited about you, pos the possibility of you joining the race, uh, there was also, obviously, a lot of speculation that you wouldn't want to get in and take on yes. the Clinton factor. Well, here's where the speculation was. You're right about that. The other speculation was Biden wouldn't want to be the guy denying a woman the opportunity. Yeah, yeah. It was real simple. My son was dying. Mm. I couldn't tell anybody. The only person I could confide in was Barack. He's the only one I had to know. So what I wasn't able to do, Hillary, as I said, as a friend, we, when she was Secretary of State, we had breakfast once a week at my home. So she called me and she wanted, I'm sure she doesn't mind my saying this, she called me, she wanted to come down and talk about race. She wanted to know whether I was going to run. Are you going to run it up? And I sat down and I said, Hillary, look, it's, it's not, as, I'm much less likely that I run than not run. But if I do, it'll be straight up. It's not about you, it's about me. But what we had some hope because 
I was told that they decided to try some experimental procedures on dealing with the glioblastoma. They think they injected him with a thing called anti-PD-1 and they injected a virus into his brain and there was this one faint possibility. So it gave you hope for how long? Well, we, we never gave up hope, but it was, uh, we, we thought in January, I, I thought in January, February, there was a 25% chance maybe we beat the odds. Mm. But what I couldn't do, because it would have, he would have killed me. If I announced I wasn't running because of my son, because he wanted me to run. Yeah. When did he tell you to run? Because that became, I thought you were gonna run just because of Bo's wish that you would run. Every Thanksgiving for 42 years since I met Jill, uh, we would go to, th to Nantucket for Thanksgiving when they were little boys. Mm -hmm. So we wouldn't offend her parents, my parents, and or my deceased wife's parents. They were all wrong. So it was a, there was a, this was a nuclear holiday. Now 16 of us trech up uh, every. And so we were in Nantucket and uh, we did the Christmas lighting, Bo was sick. And he said, Dad, we got to talk. And we went back to the house we were staying in and, and they sat down and said, you don't understand, Dad. We want you to run. This is Hunt and Bo. And Hunt argued this will keep the family together. It will give us purpose. But I just didn't have the courage to do it. I just didn't think I could say to the public that, you know, this is, I, I'm not going to divert when my little grandson says, Pop, you smell like daddy. Can I lie down with you? Mm. You know, by the way, a lot of people have that. But as I'm president, yeah. I can't, I knew I couldn't. Now, they didn't make any demand. The whole family got together, even after Bo passed, and said, you've got to run, Joe. Jill wanted me to run. But it, I, In I the just, end, the decision was no because what? You didn't have because, the eye of the tiger? Because you didn't... I didn't have the eye of the tiger. I knew that I was still so... Um, I know I was missing him so that I didn't think I could, uh, I didn't think I could do the job that I would have to do. But, uh, but that's not saying do I regret not being president? Yeah, I, 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 I do, but I made the right decision for my family, I believe, at that time. And I thought that we had a really incredibly qualified candidate to mm -hmm. be president. So I didn't feel like I was leaving the field and because I left the field that there wasn't anybody who could, you know, run the country. I didn't feel that way. How can you help us as a nation bring dignity back to our conversations? I heard you speak about this. By acting with dignity. Yeah. By not, by, by not getting down into the, sort of the mosh pit. Right. So from a bigger point of view, social, spiritual point of view, where we are as a nation, as a culture of people, how bad is it, do you think? I don't think it's, let, let me tell you what I think the underlying cause of angst is. It goes beyond politics. We're going through such a gigantic transition the consequence of digitalization, supercomputing capability, artificial intelligence, the ability to do things that were had to be done by an individual, no longer having to be done, can be done by a machine, is scaring the living hell out of people. My dad used to have an expression, Joey, a job is about a lot more than a paycheck. 
It's about your dignity, your respect, your place in the community, being able to look your kid in the eye and say, it's going to be okay. That's what a job's about. And so now you have tens of thousands of people, millions of people, black and white, looking out there and hearing the debate going on about globalization. And the question is, how do you adjust that globalization to meet people's needs? So has there been a thought or consideration for 2020? No, not yet. No. And I say that not yet because I, I, I look, I, I'm, I'm a great respecter of fate. Um, I don't plan on running, but I tell you what, I plan on going. And here's my problem. You know, I learned how to become one of the most popular elected officials in the United States. Yeah. Now you're not running for president. It's amazing. <laughs> Boom, things go. You know, it really gets good. But I'm asked to speak a lot in political for, and I'm doing it not as nearly as often as I'm asked. Because every time I'm asked, they say they translated and I'm running for president. But I'm going to do everything I can to change the dynamic here. Because I think we can win back the House. And I think we have a shot at the Senate. And, you know, the other expression my dad used was, look, don't compare me to the almighty. Compare me to the alternative. <laughs> right now, I look awful good. But I can go out and do that, raise money and do those things. But I'm not sitting here now. I'm, a, as I said, a great respecter of fate. I'm... I'm over 70. I'm, thank God, right now in awful good health. I, you know, so I promise you, I'm not doing anything to organize running, but I'm going to go out there and continue to do what I've done since I've been 26 years old. Mm -hmm. Holler. What is it, do you think, that it's about power that changes people? And how have you managed the power you've held? Well, I haven't held that much power. Um, my power, the reason I'm viewed as having had power is uh, all, there's no power in the vice presidency. It's all reflective. It comes from the president. But I think the reason people abuse power is that they, in fact, uh, um, are seduced by um, uh, the notion that, uh, that they are so self-important, that they really matter, when in fact uh, it is not usually the case. The way, only way... There's the, the, the leaders I've observed who are the best are the ones who have courage to take a chance, be willing to lose on principle, and two, are self-aware. They understand their strengths and they understand their weaknesses. They play to their strengths and they try to shore up their weaknesses. And, uh, and the people who don't do that are the people who aren't self-aware enough to know what they're, because most of the time that abuse ends up in their downfall as well. We see so much on the news every day, rage and uh, anger on both sides. What do you think is the source of all this rage and furor? Well, I think it's because they think the system has failed them. I think they look out at the Congress, and for the last, since Barack got elected, the first thing the Republicans did was say, how can we keep him from succeeding at all? Yeah. And so the Congress has been sitting when now, you think I of, think, at 11%. When, when I was in the Congress, we were more divided, but we, were, we actually knew there had to be work together to get consensus, to get things done. I also think they look out at the political system and they think that they are powerless. Uh, they're powerless because they don't possess money and power to influence votes, influence outcomes. What are you most proud of, Joe? I'm most proud of, at least to this point, of having served as long as I did, and Democrats and Republicans still accepting my word and treating me as if I'm honorable. I am proud of being able to say that I never voted for anything that I disagreed with. Mm. 
when I was agnostic about it, I'd look whatever my constituents want, I would vote for it. But I never voted for anything that I was, uh, that I thought was, thought was wrong. Now that you've had time to write a book and reflect on your life and decisions, do you think differently about that moment when President Obama was giving you the Medal of Freedom? What struck me about that moment is you kept saying, I don't deserve this. And I was thinking, of course you deserve it. Do you think well, differently you know, now that... I, I, I don't, I still don't think. I, don't. Look, I think I'm a, I hope I'm a decent man. I, I hope I've done some good, but to single me out as you one of You think or you know? Well, I think, I know I've done some good. <laughs> All right. But, you know, I, I, I think that's, uh, I think there's other people that are more deserving than me. Really? I really do. What is your definition of freedom as it pertains to your own life? Uh, continuing to be able to say what I believe without fear of anything other than significant disagreement. Knowing that I still live in a country where I can say or do whatever I believe and it will be protected. What is the one thing people want to hear at the end of their lives? As we always say, you're a good man or you're a good woman. Hmm. They want to know that at the end of their lives that it was worthwhile, that, that people that love them, that's why, but anyway. That's why, go ahead. That's why it's so important to tell your mother or father who's dying if you have a chance to be with them. That's why it's so important to be with them and tell them, tell them all about how much you love them. Tell them how much they did for you. Talk to them. And that's one of the great things I got to do with my mother and father and, and, and my son, Bo. I mean, I was there holding his hand. I mean, you know, it was... What was um, that last moment? He looked at me and he said, Dad, I'm not afraid. I'm okay. I always wear this rosary. And uh, he had it on at that time. Um, and um, it was uh, at the very end, and his brother was sitting there, and the three of us were holding hands. And um, he wanted to reassure us. But we got a chance to tell him. We got a chance to tell my mom. We got a chance to tell my dad. Is that a sacred, holy much. moment? Is that what, what happens in that moment when you can literally see the spirit goes someplace? Is that? Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, that's what the soul is. Mm -hmm. That's, uh, um, look, I mean, the soul is eternity. The soul is redemption. The soul is, um, the place where forgiveness happens. The soul is, um, is where you continue to live. I mean, I know my boy's with me. Mm. I know my daughter and his wife and his brother and his mother know he's still with us. You know, uh, my number two granddaughter, Finnegan, they had, uh, I walked out, they were there in the hallway when the last, the doctors told us what to expect. And, and my five grandchildren were talking, really the three oldest. <laughs> and I heard Finnegan say, WWBD. 
I said, honey, what's that? She said, no, we're just talking, Bob. And I said, what's that mean, honey? She said, well, well, what would Bo do? What would Bo do? You know, you have to get to the point. I, I, I did the Colbert show a while ago, and it was much more revealing than ever anticipated it was going to be. Mm -hmm, I saw that. And I came home, and my son Hunter said, Dad, now you've talked about Bowie. He said, now it's time we talk about what Bowie wanted us to do. Now it's time for us to talk about what Bo wants. Not about our loss, but about what he wants. What would he be doing? I find real solace in that. And uh, so does my whole family. So the way Bo died, the dignity and the grace in which he held on to, to the last breath, actually ended up being um, a powerful force, a light for the way you now get to live. Absolutely, and for my whole family. And the whole family. The whole family. And now for all of us, because we get to hear his story. Well, you know, there's a lot of, again, I, I only thing I feel self-conscious about talking about this is that I don't want people to think it's like it's you know, only me and well, this happened I don't think people it's, think I that. Mean, it's, this is I don't so... Think, I don't think, you know what people feel? They feel me too. I hope so. They feel because me too. Because there is, there, there, there is hope. Yeah. There they really is hope. Too. Thank you connected. for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. You can follow Super Soul on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Super Soul Conversation. Thank you for listening. 